Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all that's packed into this uh, chapter that we're going to look at today. I pray you'd give us ears to hear and minds that are submitted to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Mark Twain once said, why waste your money looking up your family tree? Just go into politics and your opponents will do it for you. And that is true, isn't it? And then another person I read said, imagine the disappointment for the wolf if he knew his descendant would be a pug. Well, that's how your grandpa feels when he sees your man bun. So anyways. (laughs) Well, as we begin our study today, there are so many interesting issues uh, that are brought to light immediately following the flood. Suddenly, people and animals are not going to just eat green plants exclusively anymore. Animals are going to be a part of the diet. And we're also told about capital punishment, and here is where God instituted human government. And everything changed with the animal kingdom as well. Uh, Before the flood, animals were not afraid of people. But now they would be afraid of people, and for a very good reason. As chapter 8 ended in our study last week, we saw Noah was worshiping God after he got off of the ark. God promised he would never destroy the earth again by a worldwide flood, despite the reality and the truth that men's hearts are evil from their youth on continually. For the human race to continue, God gives specific regulations now for mankind. And this is because God has a heart of love and compassion, even for rebellious, defiant people. So let's look at our study at the laws that God has instituted for the human race. We read in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the seas into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man... From every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made them. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth and multiply in it. So after God had wiped out every person on the planet earth, an animal except those in the ark, he now commands them to be fruitful and multiply. We saw back in our study of chapter 4 that the godly line of Seth had begun Wonderful men like Enoch descended from him and ultimately Noah as well. But God had destroyed the line of Cain and his descendants. So God's plan was therefore to be children born. And certainly that is God's plan today as well. The purpose for having children is not to meet an emotional need of a parent, but that they would be raised to come to faith in the Lord and follow him and be a light in a dark world. As believers, should God make the way, we are to have a ministry to uh, produce and or influence children to be followers of the Lord. This was the first thing God commanded to do, Noah to do. After the flood, uh, animals would now have a totally different relationship with people. Fear and terror of humans would be the response by animals. As God uh, speaks of the animals being afraid of people, he does not include domesticated animals. And it's for good reason God put the fear of man in animals and instinctively put that in there because from this point on, man is going to eat them and besides fruits and vegetables. So if the animals had no fear, they would just normally walk right into traps for people and be their meal and eventually there wouldn't be any animals. So God has now included animals in the diet of people to sustain them. 
Think about the plant world and how radically it must have changed after being under that vapor on Earth of the tropical environment. Now, with the changes, there's deserts, there's frozen tundras, there's giant oceans. Well, obviously today, people still have the freedom to eat whatever they choose to eat. God has given us freely all things to enjoy if we receive it with gratitude. And there may be some who choose to not eat animals, and that is their choice, but it has nothing to do with what the Bible says about food. Others have made saving the animals and fish on our planet from being eaten by people their main purpose in their life. Uh, my son-in-law, Jason, had taken his son, fish, his son fishing, oh, this is about five months ago, <clears throat> and he was so verbally attacked for fishing. This woman went ballistic on him, went up to my grandson and said, your dad's a murderer, <clears throat> and just went on and on and on. If fish had eyebrows, just because they don't doesn't mean that they can't express pain and grief that you're invading their home, and on and on it went. When my son-in-law said, so what do you think about the babies in the womb? Does that, does that matter? Oh, why are you talking about that was, you know. No concern for preserving human life, just want to protect the fish. So... The confusion of sin. Anyways, God is our authority, though, and he has given us all food to enjoy, with the only restriction being not having the blood in the animal. Leviticus 17.11 tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So God would accept animal sacrifices, as we saw right from the get-go, after Adam and Eve's sin, as a substitutionary death for guilty sinners that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God. People may choose to be vegetarians for personal reasons or health reasons, but if it is only to try to spare the life of the animal, that's just not the view we find here in Scripture. It's a rather pantheistic view because there are so many false religions that are thought that animals are in the image of God, and therefore you don't harm an insect or an animal. Meanwhile, people are starving with a food source walking around all around them. It's a clear in our passage today, God provided animals for man's need for food. And then we see God's protection through his instituting uh, capital punishment. In verse 5, we see clearly God states, any animal or any person who kills another person, God requires that their life be taken. Until this point in human history, that was not the case. Remember, Cain killed Abel, and God didn't kill him. As a matter of fact, he protected him. But we read in verse 6 that we see God clearly established human life as superior to that of animals because only people are created in the image of God. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, specifically an introduction to human government. And this is confirmed throughout the Old Testament, New Testament books like uh, Romans 13. But before the flood, there was no official government that dealt with violence and thus the escalation to such a horrific world that God destroyed. But now God established government in order to execute judgment for the murder of someone created in his own image. People may say, well, the murderer is also created in the image of God, and therefore his life should be spared or her life. But it is God alone who has the right to take a human life, and he is the one to institute human government to act in his place. So the point of capital punishment instituted by God is to preserve and protect human life. That's what it is about. We are to treat people with kindness and respect 
as God's creation in his own image. So how odd it is that many in our society and our world fight violently against capital punishment, yet they would fight just as violently for the right to murder a baby within a woman. Makes no sense. From these first seven verses of chapter 9, we've been reminded children are God's plan. They are a gift from him. We have seen God's provided us with the freedom to eat all kinds of food, including animals, and hopefully that we can live in a country that actually punishes murderers in order to protect our own lives. And that brings us to God's covenant uh, with Noah. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, uh, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast on the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the field of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. <clears throat> so we have a promise here by God. Never again will there be a global flood. It's a promise to descendants of Noah, all of including us. And this promise is extended to the animal kingdom, notice in verse 10. And even though animals cannot grasp God's mercy to them, we see in the heart of God that he cares about them. Uh, God's providential care includes every beast of the field. And we know from the New Testament that God cares about a sparrow or a bird that falls to the ground. So God made a commitment to all the inhabitants of the earth that despite the fact that man is sinful continually, he will not destroy the earth by a flood again. As you saw in your lesson today in 1 Peter 3, 6, we know that there is coming a day of judgment on the planet earth during the great tribulation, and then it will be destroyed by fire. Well, this promise from God is unconditional. It's a promise completely to be kept by him on his part. God put a sign in the sky that would be his pledge and assurance that he would keep his word. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I, see, when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. So these verses tell us about the sign that God has given to never send another worldwide flood. And the sign is a visible reminder to all that God keeps his word. He put the rainbow in the sky right after rainstorms on the earth. And the Hebrew word for bow is typically a reference to a hunter's bow with their bow and arrow. And the idea is that God is putting his bow in the cloud. Having already shot all the arrows of judgment on the world through the flood, he has now hung it up. He will not be shooting arrows of judgment by a flood again. What a comfort it would have been, particularly to Noah and his family. I mean, think about how they would have felt the first time a thunderstorm came or a heavy downpour of rain. What, your immediate thought was, uh-oh. <laughs> so God gave them this promise, this covenant, there's never going to be what you've just endured, a horrific worldwide flood. What a comfort to know God cares about people. God cared about the concerns and fears of Noah, and his care extends to the entire human race, regardless of their spiritual condition. <clears throat> Verse 15 says, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God 
and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh on the earth. So not only is the rainbow a reminder to the people on earth, it's a reminder to God, not that he needs anyone to remind him or anything to remind him. He's communicating to us in human terms. The rainbow tells us that God is merciful to not send more arrows of judgment through the flood. The rainbow extends from the heavens to the earth. It's a sign of the mercy of God. So when we see a rainbow, it really ought to cause us to think about the incredible mercy of God, the grace of God in our lives, the fact that God keeps his promises. If you fast forward to Revelation 4, where John is given a vision of God's throne in the heavens when he's about to do judgment on this earth for the last time in the Great Tribulation. In that chapter, though, we read in verse 3, that there is a rainbow around the throne of God, like an emerald. The truth is that God's mercy and God's judgment work together. God's holiness demands he judges sin, and that is why Jesus came to bear our sins by taking the wrath of God on the cross as he died. So God's love moves him to offer grace and forgiveness, even though he is a God who will deal with judgment for sin. And that brings us to the interesting little story of Noah and his sons. But the point of this whole story is really the prophecy that Noah is going to give. So now the sons of Noah had come out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these, the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. He told his two brothers outside... Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. Well, there's all kinds of ideas and opinions about what went on in that tent. Uh, You know, whatever. So what did Ham actually do? And why was his son Canaan cursed? Well, to help us understand uh, this passage, we really have to keep in mind the purpose for which this book was written. It was to the Jewish people before they entered the land of Canaan in order to conquer the land. They were being given by Moses basic truths as to where they came from and the purpose of God bringing them into the land of promise, clarifying why they should be different from the Canaanites. So keeping this context in mind will help us better understand the curse of Canaan. The point seems to be that the story portrays three characteristics of the three branches of the human race that come from Noah's three sons. When Noah speaks, he makes his prophetic statement about the destinies of the descendants of his sons. This was God's explanation to Israel that their destiny is to be blessed by God and to inform them that they are to share that blessing with the other uh, members of the family, Japheth's descendants, but they were to conquer the Canaanites who lived in the land that they were about to enter. So this was a prophecy affecting Jews and Gentiles. And having this context in mind is so important because there is so much false teaching that has come out of this passage. Namely, people think God put a curse on black people, and that is why they ended up in slavery in the 1800s. But this is a completely ridiculous view, not based on any truth of the word of God. God says there's only one race It is the human race. This passage has nothing to do with the background of people of different colored skin. 
The other challenging issue in these verses we're looking at is the drunkenness of Noah. Here was this righteous man, a man of incredible great faith, preacher of righteousness, lying drunk and naked in his tent. This is a situation that leads up to the prophecy that Noah's going to give. So Noah's sons are listed in verse 18, including a grandson, Canaan, the son of Ham. So with the flood behind, God's rainbow covenant made, Moses makes clear statements about his sons. And so from these three men, you know, the entire earth is populated. All of us sitting here today can trace our ancestry, if it were possible, back to one of them. Therefore, the concept of there being many races of people is really not a biblical one. There is only one race of man and three families within that race. Within Adam and Eve were the mixture of all the races. And the same was true with Noah and his family. So between the couples uh, who married were all the features that would arise from all their genes. People married freely regardless of what one another looked like. There, everybody was in a mixed marriage back then. At the Tower of Babel is where things changed because that's when people were dispersed because now suddenly we have a language problem. So people stuck with their language group and headed out. And that caused it to be a concentrated group of people living together, so then dominant features began to emerge as they lived within their own language groups. So what does the Bible have to say about marriage between people of different skin colors or features of what we today recall race? Well, sadly, there is verses such as Acts 17.26 that people have taken erroneously again and say, well, God has set boundary lines. Therefore, people cannot cross those lines to marry outside their particular race. And this has been the basis for a lot of centuries of people saying this. But this verse in Acts has nothing to do with racial intermarriage. It speaks of the nations, not the races. If you're going to use this verse and this reasoning here, then no one from Canada should marry an American, and nobody from Germany should marry a French person. Nowhere in the Bible does it prohibit people marrying from different groups of skin color or any other feature. The only prohibitions were the Jewish people not to marry Canaanites based on their religion. And, of course, in the New Testament, we know we're not to marry those who haven't trusted Christ. But uh, God made one race. Three families come from that one race, the human race. So how dangerous it is to twist scripture in order to support the sin of prejudice and then say it's based on scripture. It's biblical. If you've been taught this error, and I know many have, I pray that you will see that it's nothing but sinful pride to believe that one family of this earth would possibly be superior to another. I remember when my husband taught this passage which I'm grateful for his notes, by the by. Um, he had a lady come up to him and say, you're wrong. My father taught me, I've always been taught, keep the lines separate from the Acts pa passage. And my husband said, well, I'm sorry, your dad's wrong. And uh, anyways, she went home. I give her credit. She was in her 80s, and that's what she'd always believed. And she went home and studied this. And a few months later came back and said, you're right. I was taught wrong. And I remember also another person coming up to me and saying, well, you can talk about that all you want, but if one of your kids comes home with somebody who's of a different skin color, you're, what are you going to do? I'm like, we'd be fine with that. The issue is, are they a believer? Well, it was prophetic anyways. <laughs> anyways, I wanted to quote um, Donald Gray Barnhouse for a comment that he made in this subject. He said, who knows, for instance, what a different course history might have taken if Mohandas Gandhi 
had not been thrown out of church in South Africa when he was there as a young lawyer. He walked into the church and some venerable white churchman said, get out of here, you black man. And Gandhi turned away from Christianity. He did not entirely turn away from Jesus as such, although he came up with an unorthodox concept of him. Would Gandhi have gone on to become a, a Christian leader instead of a man who died with the name of one of India's 300 million gods on his lips? We cannot know, of course, but we do know that you cannot find any doctrine of apartheid in the word of God. This is a human, a satanic dogma spawned by the ugliness of the unregenerate heart. End of quote. Well, that brings us now to the prophecy that is made. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to your brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So clearly, after the flood, Noah became a farmer and planted a vineyard. And one day he had a little too much of the wine that he made, and he became drunk. This would have likely been about 50 years, probably after they got off of the ark, um, because at this point, Canaan is alive, and he's the fourth son of Ham. So this incident is included in Scripture because of the prophetic statements Noah is going to make about his three sons. However, there are certainly lessons for us to learn here. Anyone can fall into a lapse of judgment or sin, even a righteous man like Noah, who walked with God. This forever put a stain on Noah, impacting his otherwise godly life. Think about it. He, he was blameless for over 600 years. Is that exhausting, Saudi? <laughs> Come on. Can't get six days, six hours. But anyways, then this happened. Such a good reminder to all of us that as we grow older, we must be very careful about our spiritual life and disciplines. How many believers in Scripture, you study the Scriptures so many times, and church history, who lived godly lives all their lives, and then, as they got to the end of life, made some foolish judgment, fell into sin, go off in some bizarre world doctrine, and fall spiritually in their later years. We don't want that to happen. We can never be lazy. We can never be careless about our spiritual lives. One blight on our character for a lapse of judgment can bring such harm to the testimony of our God. As we read, Noah's son Ham walked into his father's tent and saw him there lying there naked and went and told his two brothers about it. The two brothers, as we read, took great care in trying to cover their father without seeing him naked. And uh, we have to, we may think, what's the big deal here? But Ham was guilty of seeing his father naked and he made no effort to cover him. But instead, he just went out and talked about it to his brothers. We have to remove ourselves from our culture culture where people walk around basically buck naked on the beach or you go into a locker room, you know, at a gym and you see way more than you really ever want to see. And uh, but that was not the biblical view. That is not the biblical view of nakedness. It was a breach in family ethic to ever see a parent naked and to do nothing about it showed incredible disrespect for his father. It was a mocking of Noah. It was really an attack on the honor of his dad. Mosaic law, not yet written, also reflected this perspective on honoring your parents as the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And failure to do so was a contempt for God's word and the way he set up creation. What is seen here is the character of Ham as he completely ignored the moral code of God. Unlike his brothers, who took such great caution and effort 
to not look upon their father this way. So Ham's dishonor and Ham's disrespect uh, caused Noah to make this statement against Ham's family honor. When Noah woke up from his drunken state, you know, how he found out, maybe he wondered why he was covered, whatever. He found out the events that had happened. And as the Spirit of God moved him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So scripture makes it clear that God does not punish a child for the sins of his father or vice versa. I was just reading through Ezekiel in my, you know, through the Bible thing. And a big portion of chapter 18 reiterates that. Son is not guilty for his father's sins and vice versa. It would appear that the reason why Canaan was cursed is because God gave divine insight here to Noah, realizing that his evil tendencies would be like those that had characterized his father Ham. This was a classic, like father, like son. God revealed to Noah that the descendants of Canaan would continue with their immoral tendencies that would only escalate as every generation went by. The curse is on a future generation that will come from Canaan who will engage in evil practices. And I'll tell you, the Canaanite people were the most immoral and vile in the ancient world. Besides sacrificing children and burning them, they had an unbelievable sexual perversion of every kind. Men from Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanites. So Noah saw the attitude in his son Ham because of his shameful act and dishonor and disrespect. And from his moral lapse would come descendants that will take it to a worse and much worse and much, much worse level. The specific curse given is that he would be a servant of servants to his brothers. This carries the thought that they would ultimately be servants of their own relatives. That's Shem and Japheth and their descendants. Again, sad to say, uh, some in history have taken this passage and applied it to the slave trade as if that's why the black man was enslaved in the 1800s. Again, incredibly foolish misuse of the scripture. Ham had four sons. His son Cush refers to Ethiopia. Another went to Egypt. Put went to Libya and North Africa. But Canaan, he didn't settle in Africa. Canaan settled in, you know, the Middle East. The land of Canaan. This is a land God would later promise to Shem's descendants through Abraham. The purpose of Noah's prophecy being recorded here was so that the Jewish people would be encouraged. They're about to enter the land of Canaan. And God had already made it clear through Noah that they're destined to conquer and enslave the Canaanites because God had cursed them. This prophecy then came true. It has nothing to do with slavery. It has nothing to do with anything like that. It was fulfilled when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, and then later when Sol- in Solomon's day when he uh, used the rest for, who survived that for forced labor. So from this incident, we are reminded that God always deals with sin. The Canaanites were a vile people that God was patient with for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until time ran up. God does not sweep sin under the carpet. He always deals with it. Son would ultimate, sin would ultimately be punished through the death of Jesus Christ as God's wrath would be poured out on him uh, as he was the, through the line of Shem, that great promised redeemer. Another practical reminder from this passage is the fact that we cannot blame our behavior uh, on our environment and how bad our parents screwed up raising us. Canaan wasn't cursed for what Ham did. He was cursed because God made him responsible for his own behavior. 
And again, we see in scripture the truth that it is God who controls human history. God controls the nations of the world. God controls, controls the circumstances of your world and your life. From this one chapter we've looked at, we can see the danger of being deceived by error that, cl- that claims it's based on scripture. We women must be solid students of the word of God and be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Look at the context. Look at the verses written. Perhaps some of you have been taught the errors I have mentioned by well-meaning believers, uh, and it's just wrong. So we've run out of time to cover the rest of the passage. It's just closing with the facts that Noah's prophecy gave blessings to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Those from Japheth settled in Europe and Russia and India. So God certainly answered the prophecy that his uh, descendants would live in an expanded area. They have much of the earth. The blessing also states someday Gentiles would partake in the same spiritual blessings as the descendants of Shem. And that was fulfilled way into the future. And it's because of the Jewish people and the line of the Messiah that came through them, the line of Shem, that all the families of the earth can be blessed. 300 years later, Noah died. So my takeaway on this is, first of all, how do you view children? They are a gift from the Lord. Secondly, capital punishment is God's design. Uh, No matter, regardless of what you may think about it, God's design is so that it will protect innocent people from violent murderers. And God instituted government to deal with evil. God keeps his promises. That rainbow, every time you see one, is that reminder of with judgment, there is mercy. And we can never let our guard down as we walk down the years of life in our battle and our fight with sin. We must be vigilant and be on guard for our spiritual life always till the Lord takes us home. And we must be students of the word of God, as I said, who rightly divide the word of truth. Beware of false teaching that tries to justify bigotry, uh, all kinds of sinful attitudes and behavior based on the scriptures that we've looked at today. And lastly, God keeps his word. I hope that you've been blessed through the line of Shem, that Jesus, that great redeemer, who the promised lamb of God who came and shed his blood on behalf of sinners like you and I, I I hope and pray that everyone here has come to know him and surrendered your life to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chapter. It fills in so much history for us and brings so many important issues to light, how things began and with human government and with animals and just so many things that we wouldn't have known if we weren't studying or you hadn't recorded this for us. I pray that we would be real students of the word and check everything out that we're taught to make sure it is sound and the intent of what you're saying in your word. Pray that you'll give everyone here safety and health and a wonderful celebration of all the things that we have to be thankful for, mainly our salvation And how blessed we are to be able to gather with loved ones and have food to eat. Lord, you are so kind. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.